Hello and welcome to the Inheritance Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I'm a family office advisor and I've always been interested in what people do with their money and what it does to them. Today we are talking to Tony Guernsey, former National Head of Wilmington Trust Wealth Management and a longtime senior banker at J.P. Morgan and founder of the UBS U.S. Private Bank. Tony wrote an unpublished memoir with his wisdom and great stories from his distinguished five decades managing money for many wealthy and famous clients and was very generous to share some of them with me. It's a rare peek inside this often fascinating and eccentric world, but also highlights the lack of education out there for those who have the responsibilities of wealth. I hope you enjoy my talk with Tony Guernsey as much as I did. Did you always want to work on the street? Pick a road and you go down it. I came out of the service. J.P. Morgan's recruited, always has, still does, out of the military. When I was there, Mr. Gates, who was chairman, secretary of the Navy, Mr. Patterson was in the Navy, Lou Preston was in the Marines. So I think a combination between my military service and my leadership in various sports got me the job there. Why did I end up there? I looked at insurance for a while because I did an internship on that. And uh, it was a training program. Back then, Xerox had a great training program. Saks Fifth Avenue had a great retail. And J.P. Morgan had a great training program. And uh, it was a very concentrated six-month course, primarily in counting back there. It was taught by Sandy Burton, who was head of the SEC. And you came away with a mini MBA. And so that was the attraction to get some training and something. I didn't have the advantage of going to law school or business school. I was drafted when I was 22 years old in the service. And I got out when I was 25. And at that point, I was getting married and have children. So I never had that advantage. So I, so I need training. I didn't know what the street was when I interviewed with J.P. Morgan, very frankly. And back then, it was a very different street. Back then, debt, the only way you could borrow money for it as a corporation was either through a bond or a bank. They didn't have commercial paper. And now you can take money of 365 assets on your balance sheet, securitize it, and finance it. So it was a very different thing, but it was a great group of camaraderie. If you go back, I probably handled three quarters of partners of Lehman Brothers, most of all Morgan Stanley people. You go down there, and I spent 47 years doing it. I just had a good time. The reason why I went into wealth management was because I had an internship in London, and I was an aviation insurance broker of Lloyd's of London in 1968. This is when we insured the first 747, just to give you an idea how far back that was, which was insured, by the way, on the basis that it was so big that you could not kill everybody on it. If it came arrest against a mountain, it would spill open and you'd save half the people. That was how the policy was written. Of course, the first one went down and the premium changed. And being an American, only American in Lloyd's of London, knowing that because I was wearing a blue seersucker suit, which I think they had never seen before, but that's all I had. I started to get all this crap from America, just the lowest stuff. We did Andrew Jackson's home in down south, and we came in with a helicopter, picked it up to move it to another park, and the whole thing was nothing but it was termites and all it was dust, total loss. But I was seeing deal with people. And so the more interesting policy I was asked to do then was ensuring share. And this was the three different policies, her left face, her left breast, and her left leg. And looking at your face now, I can tell why did they only do the left side? I don't know, but this is the way it came through. Someone pointed out to me years later that Sonny always stood on the right side and therefore blocked out that so he didn't even insure it. But today, this is a very common policy. I think Taylor Swift's legs are insured for $20 million. Jennifer Lopez is, is worth $50 million. So the reason why that was interesting, I joined J.P. Morgan, came out of their training program, and because I worked in Great Britain for a while, they put me in the British Isles 
Group, and we are doing the underwriting of the North Sea Oil Exploration. This was the largest syndicated bank loan ever made. It was four leather-bound books. It was $700 million. I think 40 years later, I had overdraft authority for $700 million to tell you the difference in, in life. And you would sit there and you'd say, this is what we're going to do. You send a text over to BP and BP would send a text back after that. And you say, I don't see where I'm adding any value here. I like dealing with individuals. Why don't we go into that business? And everybody looked at us crazy because the personal bank was black sheep. You basically handled your employees and some partners of on Wall Street or Brown Brothers or Solomon Brothers. And that's what all of us doing. But we, I, because I was doing with individual stuff at Lloyd's, I thought it was interesting. Went there. Sat under the chandelier at J.P. Morgan, 80-foot ceilings of green damas, oil 3,500-piece crystal chandelier that was given to J.P. Morgan from Austria for helping them in the World War II. It was all marble. They had the, all the original partners of J.P. Morgan, huge pictures of them, private elevator, the chairman's office, all marble. And so we sat there, and we said, we're going to do business individuals, and I'll glad to tell you, or sad to tell you, that nothing happened. The phone never rang. We sat there for two weeks. Nothing happened. There was nothing to do. And being more a little bit aggressive than that, we had to figure out what to do. So at the time, the only database that we had was Dun & Bradstreet always wrote a report. At least it was one page long saying, here's where you're located. This is their business. This is the number of employees. And this is their annual sales. So I ordered 5,000 of the Dun & Bradstreets. And every afternoon, we took 12 of them and went out and cold call in 1972 for J.P. Morgan. And I can tell you, 90% of the people were very aghast at the fact that J.P. Morgan was cold calling in 1972 in Wall Street. But it worked very well. We got a lot of business. Other people copied it, and that, that led me to other managerial positions in the business. What was the culture like at J.P. Morgan when you started there, and how did it change over the years? That's a big question, man. <laughs> the different, we were talking about the greatest generation and all that. There's a story in my book about, I was coming back from lunch, at the India House and on Wall Street, and New York City was going bankrupt. There's 10,000 people in line around the manufacturer's hand trust company. It was Friday, and it was scary. And we sat there in this big room and said, what on earth are we going to do? And while I was sitting there, we were having a party for a man who had been working for Morgan for 43 years. He had made vice president a year before his retirement, and we were going to give him a retirement party at his desk over there. We went over there, and as we were celebrating this, Jim Wolfenson walked in, and Billy Solomon walked in, John Goodfriend walked in, John McGillicuddy walked in, John Reed walked in. This is an elevator that only held two people. And all of a sudden, all of Wall Street was coming in to solve this problem. Halfway into the celebration for the man who's retiring, the door opens and Pat Patterson walks out, Navy man. But he was coming right to us, the chairman of the bank. He put out his hand to the man who's retiring and said, Al, is it true you're really retiring? He said, yes, Pat, it's been 43 years. And Pat said, do you remember when we were playing golf with a Diet Pepsi can? baseball in Texas and the armadillos were chasing around. We we're calling that utility. Laugh, laugh. Yes. I remember like that. And Pat said, so where are you going? Where are you going to retire? And Al said something like Mosquito Point, Florida or some awful place like that. And Pat said, I've got a place down in, in Florida and I'm going to come down next year. I want to finish that golf game we had down in Texas. And he said, I really, I just want to come down and thank you for working here. I got a little bit of problem upstairs, but I want to thank you for working here. And he waddled back in the elevator and everybody was just heart was this big. Now, the other side of the story, let's go 30 years past that. My wife worked for Jamie Dimon, J.B. Morgan. She worked there for 34 years. His signature is on that photograph right there. We were giving a party for the managing directors that were promoted that year in J.P. Morgan Asset Management. It was the 
large asset management manages a trillion, four hundred billion dollars, something like that. And someone was giving a toast to the managing directors, and Jamie walked over to me. He didn't really want to hear the speech, so he said, "So I understand you worked at P. Morgan." I said, "Yes, sir. I did, sir." He said, "Call me Jamie." Okay, Jamie. And he said, "What was it like back then?" And I got about as far as the story of coming back from India House, and he looked at me straight in the face, and he said, "Would you get to the point?" I said, "Excuse me." He said, get to the point. I said, the point is that I hope you don't screw up this bank. And he said, I don't intend to. I said, you're off to a hell of a start with me. And he laughed. This guy's a rock star. He's worth a billion dollars. He's an unbelievable banker. But here you have Pat Patterson, the old school, coming out of the military, coming down to thank an employee here like this. And Jamie, who doesn't have ability to retain something for 30 seconds and go moving on to the next thing. So there's the big difference. They're both great leaders. They're both great bankers. I would say that I wouldn't say that Jamie is less principled than Pat Patterson was. It's just a different approach, a very different approach. What made Morgan very special is that they wouldn't let you sit in one job and one group for long. About every four or five years, you would go from working in the utilities group to being the rep in Kuala Lumpur to running Euroclear in Brussels, then back covering correspondent banking in the Midwest. And they just wanted you to learn this way. So they figured you're a good manager, you can manage people, you understand the business, but you're going to learn something. So what made the people at Morgan very special was the diversity of the career you got there. I chose to be in one area. The difference of that is, is that for years, banking was lending. And when a lot of the relationship management went away in banking, which was so competitive in pricing a different product, many of the corporate bankers came to wealth management and said, we know how to do this. We know how to be a relationship manager. We know how to do that. The only problem is, yes, you know the bank, one side of the balance sheet, but you don't know the other balance side of the balance sheet. It is really different when you lend money to someone and what that position is versus them owing you money. Very different. But you couldn't automatically take a corporate banker and put a wealth manager because they never had the training. And believe me, everybody spent a lot of time teaching the bankers portfolio management, fiduciary responsibilities like that. What happened to the partnership model on the street? I think Glass-Siegel probably blew it up, in all honesty, for years. The only person who could actually underwrite securities and be a bank was Brown Brothers. And they never utilized the charter. They decided to be basically a corporate banker and be wealth management, but they weren't going to go in the investment banking business. So when they let Last Eagle go, all of a sudden, all, product was produced on Wall Street, and you lost that sort of partnership feeling. I remember talking to a person recently at Goldman Sachs who was unhappy, but has is, is not been laid off. And I said, who's your greatest competitor there? And she said, the person next to me. Do you think any of that shift happened during the 1980s? There were different stages. When I joined J.P. Morgan's training program, there were 36 people in it. There, I was probably one of the five BAs in it. The rest had MBAs and further degrees. There probably was 5% women, 30% Asian and Indian in the training program. It was a very diverse group, but they would say, the 36 of you, only five will be here in three years. And uh, that's just the way it lays out. And But we will guarantee that you will get a great job when you leave here with the legacy of J.P. Morgan. And after 16 years, I was recruited away to go run UBS, start a private bank for UBS in North America. It definitely was because I had J.P. Morgan heritage. Definitely. that was it. So what they said was absolutely true. It didn't feel very good when they said it, but it was absolutely true. And most of everybody in our training program ended up with superior jobs after they left J.P. Morgan. Many of your clients were driven entrepreneurial people like Jay Shiat. Maybe you could start talking a little bit about Jay and tell us who Jay Shiat was. 
Jay Shiat was a Brooklyn-born aggressive advertiser that formed Shiat Day Housing Firm. It was probably the most innovative firm for a number of years. They were West Coast based. His headquarters in Venice, California was built out of cardboard. He was one of the first people to go virtual. Later, many years after he was retiring, people would come into Shiat Day and they would check their briefcase and they'd take out a computer and they'd go sit on the floor. And that's the way Shiat Day was. But he did all the advertising for Apple. He did all the advertising for Intel. He had a wonderful advertisement for the Yellow Pages. And it, was, it had a very funny spin to it. They showed a picture of a woman walking down the street with a bikini on, and they would say, seat covers. And you call that was the seat covers to get your new seat covers to your car. So I had this wonderful sense of humor like that. When he lost Intel's account, I've never seen it done before. He took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal in the New York Times saying, thank you for hiring us for 20 years. Good luck to whoever the firm for that. This is a great company to represent. Just class act that way. I met him primarily through a California contact that who owned Architectural Digest, who was based out there in Bon Appetit magazine. And Jay, for some reason, took up the game of golf, which was very unlike him. He didn't do anything athletic, really. He didn't play tennis, but he got infatuated with golf. He probably read 40 books on golf before he ever swung a golf club. I was very interested that way. What was Jay like as a client? Impossible client. He was indignant, this man. But he had a simplicity of him. I'd have lunch with him, and he'd write back a formal letter and say, Dear Tony, thanks for lunch, Jay. Full of letterhead, everything like that. And there was classically things like that. Constantly, as a matter of fact, when he died, they did a whole book. I called them Jay-isms. And it was very funny, which we would say that next time you should listen to me because I don't really follow any of it. It was like Rio Ibera, uh, Jay. But he was just an indignant guy. Oh, I'll tell you, the great story is J.P. Morgan didn't know how to advertise at all. They didn't need to, but they decided that other people did. So I called in Jay and said, I don't think we're even fit for your firm. We're not fast enough like that. And he came in. And he met with about 10 people at J.P. Morgan, including the head of the division. And Jay came in and said, I'm probably known for losing half of the business. He said, I just lose half the business. That's just what happens to me, but half is good enough. And he said, so I can tell you right now that if you hire me, many of you will disagree with me, but you're going to have to rely on my expertise. And the chairman said, listen, we got some bright people here. Why do you think we're going to disagree with you? And Jay said, because advertising is an aesthetic decision, and none of you have the same aesthetic decisions in life. Our guy said, I don't I know if I agree with that. I said, all right, let me just do this. Let's go around the room, and each of you tell me what color car you own. So it started, it was green, gold, yellow, blue, red, white. And Jay said, stop. There it goes. So if I'm going to come in and recommend white to you, the red guy is going to say, why did you do red? And the green guy said, why did you do green? He says, so you're not going to agree with me like this at all. I remember him talking to a major brewer, a foreign brewer, and this man said, I did all of this without advertising. Jay said, hey, imagine what you could have done if you advertised. Like this. And he was just indignant that way. Met many stories about Jay, but he was married four times, I believe. And he just had a great, great sense. The great advertiser like that, a man just died named Alan Kay. Probably don't even know Corey Kay. And he was the one who invented see something, say something. And I knew him quite well. And he, I said, how'd you come up with that? He said, we came from loose lips, sink ships. It was the same thing. I was trying to come something, and eventually it became a global community. I had its own revenue, see something, so you can be anywhere in the world. And Alan Cates had it figured out in about 10 seconds. And Jay was that type of person. He was that quick like that. And he attracted some incredible clients, and he had some really very talented people behind him, too. Were you able to discuss his portfolio with him? 
absolutely impossible. Didn't understand asset allocation, didn't understand money management. Why don't you go out and buy it and put all the money in Intel? I know the company well, they're going to do really well. I know what the earnings are going to be. No, it doesn't work that well. And eventually, as you age, there's an old axiom in, in wealth management is that your equity portfolio should be your age minus 100. So if Jay was 30, theoretically, his equity should have been 70%. When he was 70, his equity should have been 30%. He would be strange that way. He'd say, no, I'm still 20. I still think I'm 30. Later in life, he was. we were playing golf together, and he had a medical problem. I said, what are you going to do about it? He said, I'm going to change something and remarry my fourth wife. He should have gone after what his problem was, but he just thought he was 20 or 30 years old the whole time. Is there a way to educate a client like that? Again, I'll go back to the fact we spend so much time preparing the money for the client, but no one prepares the client for the money. So if you hand Jay Shiat $40 million, he would spend it on art, spend it on a house in a Hampton. They just know that that's an advertising creative guy because honestly, he would think tomorrow would be always a better day, which is very refreshing to be around. So tomorrow will be good. Don't worry about it. I'll replace it tomorrow. I understand it was Jay who introduced you to Steve Jobs. Jay called me up one day and said, I handle Apple's advertising. He said, I said, yeah. He said, Steve Jobs sold his company last week for $100 million. And he was solicited by someone on Wall Street. And they lost $17 million in the first three days. You need to go help Steve out. He doesn't understand what he's doing. This was before algorithms, but basically it was in the capital markets. And he said he was staying at the Carla Hotel in New York City. And could I go up and have breakfast with him? And I said, yeah, I can do that. I'm not sure what I'm going to talk to him, but I said, just be yourself. He needs to know someone like yourself. And so I walked into the dining room there at Carlisle, and he was, oddly enough, dressed as the preppiest man I've ever seen, with a blue blazer on, a Brooks Brothers blue shirt, button-down shirt, a red and navy blue bow tie, gray flannels, and I'll never forget, a penny loafers. And... Not many people wore penny loafers anymore. So I sat down and he said, what do you do? I said, I do this. He said, good, I need someone like that. And he said, do you know anything about technology? I said, no, not really a whole lot. I use this and that. And so he said, I think for technology to be successful, it has to be a thousand times more pertinent to the existing application. I probably put a blank face on it. I said, so example, he said, think when a woman had to get her hair shampooed, in the 17th century in a castle, how did they dry it? I don't know. I said, well, she was probably sitting in front of a fire and there was a couple of maidens who were patting her hair. He said, exactly. And what do they do now? Hair dryers, a thousand times better than that application. He said, think of guys cutting down the woods in Europe and Austria when they harvest all the wood. There's two guys at the end of a saw going back and forth, a chainsaw, a thousand times more applicable than that. So he said, I think there's going to be a machine. We will create a machine that's smaller than a pack of cigarettes that will be your calculator. It'll be your tape recorder. It will be your slide rule. It will be your heart monitor. It'll be your telephone. It'll be your television set. And on, he listed about 40 different things that this thing did. And guess what? It turned out to be smaller than a pack of cigarettes. So I dealt with him for a number of years uh, until he was negotiating with Iger on basically with Disney and Apple and everything like that. Morgan financed Steve Jobs in two loans. One was a $10 million loan to buy Pixar, which was a Lucas-created thing. And that is where most of the Jobs money came from at the end of the day. Disney bought Pixar. Mrs. Jobs is sitting on a whole lot of Disney because of that. And that's where most of his wealth came from until he went back to that. 
And then the other one was something called Next, which is a computer that was built for Wall Street trading. It was, what was so interesting about that is that the logo of Next was done, I wish I knew the man, it's in my book, by the same man who did IBM's logo. And Steve was so interested in getting the logo right, like IBM, that he really didn't care what the machine did. He just wanted to make sure the logo was right. And it was a black box and it had different colors on the next computer. And eventually I was sold to Pro Systems for about $450 million. It's so funny because I was out in, in California at the Apple headquarters and reviewing the relationship. And I said to Steve, we have these two loans with you. I said, I don't have a loan with you. I said, yes, you do, sir. You have two loans. No, I don't do loans. I give away equity instead. And I think to myself today, if I had only taken equity <laughs> instead of a $10 million loan, Morgan would have been really wealthy. And interesting enough, Morgan at the time didn't want it because the loan was too small. Why would we want $20 million of the loan in the corporate bank? You handle the private bank, but that's the way it was. And they would have made a complete fortune. But at the end of the day, the CFO came in and said, yes, here's your signature on two notes. And he obviously didn't have any problem paying them back whenever he did. I always assumed Next was for personal computing, not for the Wall Street market. Yeah, trading, mostly trading. A lot. We'd go to the top trading people and say, I'm Apple. I got a new trading system for you. Go for it. UBS took one on. I think Morgan Stanley took them on. Payne Weber took them on. And it was a whole trading system. Gear, it probably did many other different things. I don't know why. I don't know what Perot Systems was doing at the time to buy it. But obviously, it expanded further than that. There's so much been written about Jobs, and he was this strange man. He he got sick, and from what I understand, he decided to treat it homeopathically, and that was not right. He red rice and all that, that's fine, but and he eventually bought a kidney or liver, whatever it was, in Mexico, which was too late. We do know that, as evidence in all the biographies, that he had a cleanliness situation whereby he didn't bathe, didn't take a shower or bath. When he worked at Atari, they wouldn't let him work during the day because he smelled so badly. So he only worked at night. And supposedly, from the people I knew who knew him, he thought this was because he was a pescatarian. And they, someone said, if you eat a lot of fish, you won't smell. That was not the case. Why was his hair cut so much? Because his background created a lot of grease. And so he did. So he always had a shaved head in order to not be too greasy. But he never registered a car. In California, you had to register a car at six months. So he leased a car. And every five months with 30 days left, he'd have a new car delivered to the parking spot, which was a handicapped parking spot. He went in. He never gave any money to charity, had no charity. He was just so incredibly involved in the inside of the thing. I mean, if you take out an Apple computer and you take it apart, you can't believe the color coordination inside. Just look at the packaging, what goes into today's packaging. And that was unbelievable. He was so involved in a design like that. And he definitely was a brilliant man, didn't know much about money management, didn't really care a lot about wealth. Was he a low-maintenance or a high-maintenance client? Very low-maintenance. Low-maintenance. Very low-maintenance, yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that whoever sold them the derivative product on Wall Street, he just said, sure, you're good, that do ahead. And they lost $17 million in three days. And so he had no idea what was going on. One of my favorite stories in the book is about the HOD. Can you tell us what was behind the blue door on the Upper East Side? This client, how can I say this? Many people on Wall Street, when they were given an overseas assignment and they're in their late 50s, they were maybe not going to get a primary job, were fishing around for something to do. And one of these people was sort of a person that came out of the investment banking business, didn't run or work for very long, so he decided to be in the fundraising business. And somehow he was asked to fundraise for this Kuwaiti that had moved, I think it was $350 million onshore after the first Kuwaiti-Iraqi war. And the man felt that he was out of touch 
he couldn't know what was going on when he was in Kuwait, so he went to around the UN and he did a research to say who does not have a ambassador to the UN, and he found the island of Nevis in the Caribbean did not. So he went down to Nevis. I have no idea what he paid, but he paid for basically to sit at the UN Council in full headgear as a Kuwaiti representing Nevis. He was going to find out what was going on in the world better by sitting at the UN like that. And that, I don't know, that cost probably 10 or $12 million. And so he decided to move his entire family office to New York and no idea how he did this, but he found a block in Yorkville, which basically was somewhere between Lexington and York Avenue. And he approached every brownstone, every apartment building, say, I would like to take over all of your expenses if you will give me right to the back of your property, which probably had 30 or 40 feet of overgrown something and garbage like that. And I'm going to build my corporate headquarters in back of that. But the entrance would be at this building that had this sort of faded blue door. So he essentially bought the interior of a city block. The backyards. The backyards of the city block. And it was done, and it was all glass. The whole thing was glass, like an atrium in the whole back of it. And to get into it, I haven't found it. I haven't bothered to look for it. It was across from a fire department somewhere in Yorkville, and it was a sort of a weather-beaten blue door with just a keyhole in it. So the reason why I ended up finding this person is this person said, what are you doing? I said, I'm at UBS at the time, and we've got a really good microcap manager. He said, I'm using Cambridge Associates in the hunt here, and we don't do anything micro. I want your guys to come in and do pitches. So we got in the door, and it's like a James Bond set. It's marble. It's gold. There's a, there's a conference table that must have been 75 seats, gold arm, gold brocade, everything silk. They have a war room with a with a world around there and different lights where they all had different investments. Screens all over the ceilings of what's going on in the markets like that. It was the most high-tech thing and leavably good-looking executive assistants. And you never you would never forget them. They just were beautiful-looking women, all Mid-Eastern. And, but they were dressed in mini skirts and white shirts and pink sashes. We presented three times to this in this huge room. And each time I kept on seeing this man standing in the corner. And he was dressed in khakis and a white Lacoste shirt, and he had his arms crossed. And he stood there for hours. And so after about the second meeting, I walked in there, and I said to my guy, what's that guy do? Everybody, he's security, he's not a butler, he's not the team. He said, look at his shirt. I said, what's on his shirt? H-O-D. I said, what the hell's an H-O-D? He said, human organ donor. I said, what? He said, yes. This man has contracted with this Kuwaiti that if the Kuwaiti needs an organ, he can take an organ and return for that from him, or more than one organ. And in return for that, I think he had seven children, and he would get $10 million to families, and the Kuwaiti would pay for all education for his children through grad school. That was a contract. This sounds strange right now, but if you've, read, if you've ever read Town & Country and some of these or Vanity Fair, many people, many of these people have their own airplane. This man had his own surgical team on his 747. You wonder what kind of doctor you have if he's still waiting for one operation in a lifetime to replace an organ. They pay him well, but how do these guys stay current? And so he sold himself that way. And I said, that really was amazing that you could do that. So anyways, about, we got the account. I stepped away from it. I, I did fly from Teterboro in a helicopter over to 35th Street. And I did see the whole headquarters, all glass like that. And I, I don't know if it still exists on idea. But I, it was at a Yankee game about three years later. I'm standing there, and I looked over, and there's this guy. He's eating this massive linguica sausage with peppers and onions. And so I went over to him, so chomping his mouth was full. I said, I thought you couldn't eat that. He said, it's over. I said, what's over? He said, I won. I said, what the hell happened? He said he was on holiday in the desert, 
and he was celebrating it, and he choked on a piece of cat, which is a type of root that they eat there, and they couldn't get the cat out of his throat, so he choked, and my kids are going to UVA, and I got $10 million, and I'm at the baseball game. So this stuff goes on, very high-end stuff. So J.P. Morgan does not provide an HOD service? Absolutely not. But I'm sure I'm sure they have clients that have planes and people like that. Now, you also had a client that had an elaborate disaster plan. Oh, yes. That involved many $5 bills. Yes. As you're probably well aware that you're not allowed to cash a check for more than $10,000 at a bank. What you don't know is they really are monitoring it lower than that. So if you're going to try to game the system and cash three $3,000 checks in a week, they're still going to report you on called an SAR report, suspicious activity report. And this is sent to the treasury and the banks monitor this all day long and or anything else you might find funny. I met this man when he formed his own firm on Wall Street in the 1970s. He went on to be chairman of a Wall Street firm and was considered three times to be secretary of the treasury. Very involved in art, very involved in the government, never made it to the treasury. But his chauffeur would come in every Thursday and want to cash a $9,995 check, and he wanted only $5 bills. And he was carrying two briefcases and with a chain around his wrists, and we put the money in there. Every Thursday, he'd go out. And you have to understand that banks don't have this money. I don't want to cause a stir here, but banks don't have a lot of cash. It's all sent to the Fed. They have a, they do a percentage of what their Christmas, they probably order more cash. But you don't generally have $9,995 in $5 bills. So we had to order them. And every time we did, we filed a suspicious activity report. And this is when this man was being considered Secretary of the Treasury, which is just incredible. I think they only catch, I forget how many hundreds and thousands of SARs, but I think they only catch something like four people a year, which is just ridiculous amount of work that goes into it. But just the threat of it, it's when you go to the airline now, no one's wearing explosives as their shoes, but they're still checking it and therefore people don't. And finally, this man actually recently was deceased, but finally this security guard carrying the suitcase came, so I'm retiring. And we said, you got to tell us, you just got to tell us what this is about. We got bets going on like this. We have no, what on earth are you doing here like that? He said he has a safe room out West. He has three children and his second or third wife. They all have chips embedded into them, as do the dogs. And we have a disaster recovery plan whereby we have tested this and we can get the entire family out of New York City in something like 17 minutes. This could involve a boat, a helicopter, and a plane. And where they end up, is in this safe house where they have a whole lot of $5 bills sitting there. And we don't have a $1,000 bill anymore because of money laundering. They have a 500 euro note, which is called a bin laden. The note today is still called a bin laden. But the reason they did away when I started, or Morgan Tellers had $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 bills. And they, it was a collector's item. And so there's only $100 bills, so you would have thought, but somehow this man thought that better than a 20, fives were better, so he decided fives. And I forget, he must have had $700,000 or something like that with the $5 bills in his safe house. I think actually the chauffeur said they had to add on to the safe house to house the currency. They didn't have enough with all the jams and jellies and cans of stuff like that. True story, but... Now, is this part of the disaster plan that you advised your clients to have? Right? <laughs> I never really... We had a couple. One of my four favorite stories about money is again, New York City was going bankrupt and a man called me up and said, he was a commodity broker at the Cotton Exchange. And he said, I have $8 million with you and I want to pick up in cash this afternoon. And I said, don't be ridiculous. No problem. We can set aside. He thought 
the world was going to come to an end. Absolutely coming to an end. And he wanted all of his money out at once. Yes, he did. In cash. Friday afternoon. Yeah. But it was about two o'clock in the afternoon. So I didn't want to tell him that we didn't have the money. And unbeknownst to the number of people, when you work for a bank, there's something called vault duty. And depending on how many vaults you have, you took two officers. And every morning, they had to have the combination and open up the vaults to J.P. Morgan. And every evening, you had to close it. So we knew the vault people quite well because we were officers. We had to do this and that. And so I called him and said, I need eight million cash. He said, not going to happen. I don't have eight million. He said, I do, but I really don't. I said, what do you mean you do? He said, I have a bunch of money that is basically marked for any hijacking for Pan Am. We were lead bank for Pan Am, and they're hijacking people to Cuba. So I have it in two briefcases, but it's got chalk on it. It's got dye on it. If someone opened it up, it will explode. He said, I can't give that up. It took hundreds of dollars put together, and we have all the bill numbers for courts. I said, I'm not sure I can say no to this guy. It is his money. And so I went back to you. I said, maybe a promise. Why don't we do this? Why don't we just transfer the money to a savings bank next door? Because the savings banks are fine. No, they're going bankrupt too. Oh, about four o'clock, just as the tellers were closing, he walks in. We gave him $8 million in cash, some of which belonged to Pan Am. So let me ask you, what does $8 million look like on the top of your desk? In hundreds? It would contain about a briefcase by about three feet by four feet, two of them he had. So you could carry it? Yeah. And he came in and the teller came up and he didn't explain that this had dye in it, but here's all the money. And I remember, I'd never forget it because the man was holding the two briefcases and he walked out of 23 Wall Street right before the revolving door and did a Charlie Chaplin kick to the right. Said, he beat the system. I got it. And walked out the thing. And I'm going, there's a new one. And I woke up Saturday morning and there was a report on the murder news that a man had jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge with two briefcases. Now, we had no internet. We had no idea. So I figured the guy was completely insane and did himself in, was sorry, but he was a very volatile guy like that. And, but so Monday morning, I go to work and phone rings. And it's him at 11 o'clock. I said, oh, my God. I said, you scared the hell out of me. I thought you jumped. He said, I said, I was really worried about you. He said, it was worse than that. I said, just worse than jumping? He said, yeah. I felt so good by beating your system that I called up a great friend. And we went up and had dinner at Sestina. And I ordered a $400 bottle of wine. I got really drunk. And halfway through dinner, I got complete paranoid that I had $8 million sticks on my feet. So I gave my wife my wallet. And I said, I'm going to go home just feeling nervous. Like they walked out of Sestina and it was pouring rain. I couldn't get a taxi cab. So he stood in front of a bus holding up these two briefcases trying to hijack the bus. At which point, a policeman tapped him on his shoulder and said, sir, what are, you, what are you doing here? He said, I'm trying to get home. He said, by hijacking a dress? He said, yes, I have to do that. I have to get these home. He said, what's exactly in these briefcases? He said, no, I can't tell you what's in the briefcase. He went down the station. They opened up the damn thing. The die explodes in front of the police. It's as bad as it could possibly be. He gets arrested, put in jail. His wife goes home. No husband. He didn't get home where to go with $8 million. Did he take off to Mexico with it? And finally, she went and called all the different station masters. They found the guy and they told the story. I had to go down to the police station and say, yes, this is J.P. Morgan's money. That's why it's not. It was for Pan Am. He didn't steal it from the airline. But that's probably the most volatile person I ever remember in, in markets. Now, what happened to the actual money? Did you take the money back? We yeah. took the money back, and they had to recode it, and they had to redye. I think they destroyed it and reordered it, I think. I believe you had a client that raised farm animals in his penthouse in New York? Ah, yes. This man was an heir to the General Motors fortune, and J.P. Morgan wasn't very good at real estate. They do very good at other things, but they weren't very good at real estate. But they wanted to get into business, so they ended up financing 
the Galleria apartment building, which was right next to the Four Seasons, which isn't even open at the moment, on 57th Street. And they did put in like a quadruplex up above with a swimming pool and things like that. And they sold it to this man, and he wanted to basically run a farm there. So he planted corn. He had animals there. He planted grass. He planted raspberries. He had this whole thing on top of the Galleria, which, which was quite high. It wasn't as high, quite small relative to what they build today. But yeah, he had farm animals and crops up there on his four different levels. And uh, don't ever know what happened to him, but uh, sometimes you go up and down the elevator and you go, smells like a stable or something like this. Did he sell the crops? No, he just was feeding, he was feeding his animals this way. But he also had five automobiles outside. He wasn't as recluse being a farmer. He just decided it'd be fun to raise a farm. Actually, there's one story I've never told you about, which is called the Little Farmhouse on Wall Street. And this was a building, I forget, it was near 70 Pine, and it was controlled by an insurance company. And the chairman of which was a man named Harvey Dow Gibson. Harvey Dow Gibson was chairman of Manufacturers Hanover at one point. Then he went to an insurance company. But he also was responsible for putting in the first ski slope, that a ski line that had ever been done, and it was down in New Hampshire. And he would he really missed New Hampshire. So he had an entire farmhouse taken apart, shipped to Wall Street, and put on top of his office building. And literally, you when you went to it, you were there for lunch. You would go up to the top, and all of a sudden you see the great big water tower like that. You go up the stairs, and you open up this wooden door, and you're in New Hampshire. The whole thing. So Hampshire rugs, he had a golden retriever up there. All the, the glass of the panes were all bubbled from years and years ago. And it was called the Little Farmhouse in Wall Street. And the chairman used to entertain clients up there. I have no idea what done. From the outside, it was all surrounded by concrete block. So from an airplane, you couldn't see it. Obviously not the windows, but the inside, you honestly were in a 1740 farmhouse in New Hampshire. Fireplace burning, golden retriever, rag rugs, full dining room. Unbelievable. It was a great place to have lunch, though. I wanted to ask you about one of your most famous clients, which was Christo. What can you tell us about Christo, the artist? Uh, the interesting thing about Christo, of course, he knew nothing about finances. He was a brilliant artist and futurist, is I've never seen a person put all their assets on the table. And this is got your bonus. Let's say you got a five-year bonus. You're not going to get one in five years. You go to Vegas. You put the whole thing on the table. That's what Christo did. He lived very modestly. He was married to a woman who, I, as I remember in the book, I think she was born on the same day in the same year as he was. And she was his right-hand man, very powerful woman. They lived in a very attractive townhouse down in East Village next to a, a playground where there were a lot of homeless there they, who they fed like that. But when he did a project, he would put everything into it, everything he ever had, his checking accounts, any money, he put it in the thing. And then he would sell it, and then he would start reaping the rewards from either postcards or from posters. Or when he did the gates in New York, he actually sold the material. He sold the posts. They were in Vi I think they went to Habitat New Humanity. So after he did all this, he took all this material back and sold it and made a lot of money doing it. So I, the, what's amazing about Christo is that I think we probably invested in three-month treasury bills for him because it's depending on his next project. And then he needed need it all, or he could borrow against it. But at the end of the day, I've never seen a man take that much risk. What's it like working with a client like that? How does it feel to be a fiduciary for a client mm -hmm. like that? You get in your own way. In honesty, you try to do the right thing. And even though you know it's the right thing, he's not going to do it. So you, at the end of the day, it comes down to his decision. And you just hope and hope. In Christo's case, every single one worked. But you try to explain to him that you're going to owe taxes on this. You have no tax reserve on your previous project. 
He wrapped the rice tag. He did floating exhibits in the river. That's why I'm not an entrepreneur, and that's why he was. Are great advisors bred or bought? This is a question that really bothers me right now because it's it's whether or not you believe in the new paradigm. And that is, go to work Tuesday, half of Wednesday, on Thursday, got my phone, doing fine, don't need to be there. You mean work from home? When I joined business, there was an 8 o'clock meeting on Monday morning. All the heads of the divisions are there. You would sit there, take notes. If you didn't understand something, at 9.15, you could go by and see the economist saying, I didn't follow that, or go see the bond trader said, I didn't follow that. So the collaboration of being there, this is how you learned. This is how you learned. I don't know how they're going to do it now. I think there's, I'm sure there's mentoring, but the fact that you had access at J.P. Morgan or wherever I worked to leading people in-house, it's not the same to try to call them up from home or email saying, I didn't understand what you said this morning. You get back to me. The guy's got 150 emails. It's very different. To that. At J.P. Morgan, they had an officer's dining room. So you made officer, you sat there and you had lunch with the officers. The collaboration, just from that, getting to know someone like that, was student. So I think they're bred. I might be at the older school, but again, I didn't have the advantage of going to grad school. I didn't have the advantage of going to business law school, but I had the advantage of working in at the headquarters with access to everybody. That was the culture of J.P. Morgan, and you were learned how to do your job. Since at Glass Eagle, they created all sorts of licenses and everything like that. I don't think you're going to learn it from the question on the licenses on commodities. Let me make another analogy. If you were going to go to the track and there was a horse that had run three races and a jockey that had run 15,000 races and you had to divide the bet up, would you buy, divide it on the horse or would you divide it on the jockey? Years ago, it was the horse. J.P. Morgan's a horse. We're going to get you a great job. If you're not here, you'll be in a good job. That's it. Today, it's the Joe Riley's group at X company with five different people, and it's the jockey because Joe's been through this for 20 years, and he understands it. He doesn't care if you have a two-year-old horse. You want Joe because he's been doing this for 20 years. So I think they can be bought in teams. There are all sorts of teams. The banks figured this out. doesn't make any difference who we are anymore. We need lots of teams in our company to face that. And everybody's got a team card. Unfortunately, everybody looks the same. They have a great education. They have a great resume. They do great charitable things like that. I, you see so many. I think I heard that at Harvard, I think the average time one spends, so I think there's a minute and a half on an application at Harvard, something like that. There's so much stuff to look at that, that I think when you're getting hired today, everybody looks the same. How do you differentiate yourself? You come to work every day and everything's the same. And somewhere in there, you have to figure out a different path. You have to figure out What's different? How can I do this differently? And how that will make a difference. Whether you can do that from home with your computer, with your kids running around, your wife there, God bless you if you can. I come from it. You wanted to be there in the military. You wanted to be around the general or the captain to be led. You wanted to be taught. And it wasn't done from home. The people who do it, I have great admiration for that make it that way. But I think the mentoring of just someone maybe five years older than you are like that is totally invaluable. And the collaboration has to be there. So I think you need to breed them, but once you breed them, you also can buy them. And then there's a formula. There's a strict formula for that. Time is whatever revenue, and then boom, they'll end the wing in and they'll say, I hope it comes in. But yeah. What is your best advice to the wealth management industry today? I think I'll go back to almost where I started is that 
we have so much product. We have so many services that we're providing for the client. So you're doing a great job providing the information to the client, but no one's providing the client what it's like to own this money. And this is psychological. This is therapists. This is succession planning. This is sessions with the founder. I don't know if it's going to ever change because, again, the people who have this money are fear that if they give their 22-year-old $20 million, they'll never go out and get a job. And many don't. And they're right in some cases. But I honestly feel that you have a responsibility. My grandfather's a military man who would say, freedom is not free. Don't ever take it for granted. Freedom is a very sacred thing, and it took a long while to get it. And we have it, and we maintain it. So money didn't never made for me, never, it never made a difference if the person was a million dollars or $10 million or $100 million. The only thing different was the fact that the things got bigger, the planes got bigger, the houses got bigger, the art got bigger. But they still got up in the morning and they brushed their teeth, and they still had the same problems with their son or their daughter. People had disease. If you look at so many of the hospitals in New York, most of these hospitals are being funded by wealthy people who had a child or wife that had some disease. And there isn't a magic bullet here. There are advisors who will say you should tell everybody by the time of 30, 45, 50. Don't ever tell them. I think it really comes down to your relationship with your children and the fact that having money is an asset, but it's also a great liability. It's a great opportunity that I was able to make this money from absolutely nothing, the entrepreneur. But now I want to give it back. And so most of the obligation is here is how are we going to give this money back to the country or the world? And that becomes their greatest challenge, not spending it, not using it extravagantly. But how am I going to give back to a country that allowed my father or grandfather to do that? That's the greatest challenge. And people do really well with it. They're doing a great job doing that. You don't find a lot of billionaires dying billionaire. I think David Koch died in New York State and it was a huge, huge tax. But he did hospitally to sink in the consider. He was dedicated to New York City. But at a cost of probably millions and millions of dollars in taxes. But he chose not to go to Florida or become resident there. So I think it's the challenge. The difference is that in our industry, we spent so much time preparing the money for the client. ETFs, mutual funds, money market, asset allocation. We spent so much time doing that. And when the person gets the money, they have no idea what to do with it. They weren't prepared for it. And I can tell you so many instances whereby a family who sold their business for $852 million to consumer product. There are 12 beneficiaries. Nine have been married three times each since. Two have died of drug overdose. But you hand them a chunk of money, and we haven't prepared them for the money. So I think that fear is still there. It's also because we've created so much wealth. Look at the disparity between wealth and non-wealth. It just keeps on growing and growing, which, I don't know, I have a conflict with that. Jeff Bezos came up with the idea he put all his life into it, and he's worth billions of dollars. Is he bad for doing that? He created something like $750 billion in stockholders' equity. Is it bad that he's a real wealthy man? And at the end of the day, all of these people give money to the charity. They all give it back. It doesn't, they don't, you don't die a billionaire. No one dies a billionaire. No one wants to die a billionaire. But at the end of the day, whether they've done it through Warren Buffett or somebody else, they are giving it away back to charity. But are they, should they be punished because they created such a huge company and they have 250,000 employees? It's pretty good for the country. Tony Guernsey, thank you for sharing so many of your wonderful stories with us today. Joe, it's been a pleasure to describe to you my 47 years in wealth management. I wrote a book about it because my kids wanted to know the stories and have given these away to some friends. And most of this interview is contained in the book, which is called Divas, Icons, and Felons.
Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.